Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from the World. This is David Robert Farmerie. But before I begin this episode, there's just a little thing I want to share with you. I had a flashback of a memory while I was in the shower. It was back to an episode of Petticoat Junction. Now, a lot of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but for those of you who do, the episode that I'm referring to was where Uncle Joe was sitting on the front porch and he was whittling a bar of soap. And when, oh, I forget her name, anyhow, the, 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 the woman came out and she said, Yo, Joe, what are you doing? He said, I have this great new invention. I'm going to create bars of soap that are hollow. That way you will never, ever get down to that tiny sliver of soap. Of all the things that could have popped into my head, it was that. But actually, it has made me smile and even laugh ever since it popped into my head, which is why I had to share it with you. And now, the story. Remembering Virgin Gorda. Many years ago, I had spent a considerable amount of time on a tiny island in the British Virgins called Virgin Gorda. This was early in my career and long before I switched to photojournalism and documentary work. Yet, in looking back, it is quite obvious that even then my true passions were already making themselves known. And even though at the time I really didn't think about it, the signs were there. And again, in looking back to those times, I realized that my creative soul as well as my heart soared during those times that I was engaged in this aspect of my craft. But in reality, it wasn't so much that I was engaged in that aspect of my craft, but more so it was that I was engaged on a real and authentic level with other people. And inevitably, these were people that had something to say. One young man that I had met and spent a fair amount of time with, and unfortunately his name does escape me, but he lived on a part of the island. There was the north side and the south side of the island. He lived on the south end, and there they had no television until about a month or so before I actually met this young man. And he was telling me all about television. And he was telling me about a, a program that he was watching where this man had a cape. And, and at first I thought he was talking about a horror film that had Dracula in. But as it turns out, he was talking about Superman because he said, no, that what he saw on TV was this man wore a cape and he flew up and he grabbed this airplane that was about to crash and he brought it safely down. And that's how I knew it was Superman. In fact, I actually remembered that episode, sadly. But that for me ended up being a moment of great learning because what I did is in my Western ignorance is I tried to explain to him, since he was new to television, that television and what he saw was not real. It was what we call fiction. And he didn't understand the word fiction. And he also didn't understand how that could not be real because to him, he saw people every day, including Westerners or white people. And he had also seen airplanes, jet planes fly over the island from time to time. And he knew that these were real. So for him to see this man dressed in a cape that flew into him, he, the man was able to fly because he had the cape on. 
and he flew up to an airplane and he knew that the airplane was real. So to him, everything was real. But in the end, what happened was really tragic because again, in my Western ignorance, and this is before I, I, in fact, this was the time that I actually did learn that most valuable lesson. Because by the end of our conversation, which lasted about 20 minutes and then abruptly ended on his end, was because I tried repeatedly to explain to him that this wasn't real. And to him, he perceived that as me telling him that he was stupid and that he didn't know what he was talking about. And as a result, he cut the conversation off and I never saw him again. Even now, all these years later, and it's been about 35 years, give or take, this still resonates with me as a truly devastating moment. But out of that devastating moment came what is quite possibly the most valuable lesson I have ever learned in my life. And quite obviously, one that I have never forgotten. As much as I love the clear waters of the Caribbean, and believe me, I truly love them, and the almost deserted beaches, which at that time, the beaches rarely had more than one or two or three people on them at a time. But instead of basking in all of this, I found myself spending more time actually getting to know the locals and subsequently photographing several of them. And of all the people that I met and spent time with, there are three that really rise to the top. And of those three, only one allowed me to make a photograph of him. The other two, for obvious reasons that will become clear in a moment, they did not. But first, let me give you a little bit of history about the island. The original inhabitants were primarily made up of slaves that had somehow escaped slave ships and made their way by the currents to Virgin Gorda. It seems that that's where the currents brought them. And one of the people that I met, there was actually two, a husband and wife, was Bacarda Flax and his wife. And again, her name escapes me. At one point, Bacarda's wife told me a story of when she was a little girl and her and her mother were slaves. She also told me that her mother was the slave that was essentially assigned to the woman of the house. And one of her mother's duties at the end of every day was to brush the hair of the woman. Now, as Bacarda's wife was telling me this story, she got really animated. And she told me that one night as she was there with her mother, that her mother was brushing the long hair of this woman. And as, as Bacarda's wife's telling me this, she's going through the motions of, of, of the left hand of her mother holding the woman's long hair and with the right hand running the brush from top to bottom. And she said, at one point, the brush snagged in the hair a little bit and gave a little bit of a tug. And with that, the woman turned around and grabbed the brush out of her mother's hand and beat her mother to the floor. And as she told me this, she was standing there and going through the motions of this woman beating her mother with a hairbrush. For me, hearing this story from someone who was there and who experienced it directly was so profound. 
And with Bacarda, her husband, Bacarda and I would periodically sit on the stoop of his house at the doorway, and we would talk about whatever. Well, Bacarda, as well as his wife, were of the old ways. And one evening, Bacarda and I were sitting on the stoop of his house, drinking rum as we normally did, and I don't remember how we got on the subject, but anyhow, it came up that Bacarda believed that the earth was flat. Now, this conversation took place quite a while before I learned the valuable lesson over TV and Superman. So, of course, I chimed in and I said, no, Bacarda, the earth is round. No, he said, it is flat. Look. And he pointed out to the ocean and you could see that it was flat. And as it would happen, there happened to be a sailboat way off in the distance close to the horizon, which Bacarda pointed to to further defend his position. And he said, watchman, it will disappear. And sure enough, it continued to sail and it disappeared. At which point, Bacarda said that it had fallen off the edge of the earth. I took this as a sign to expound with my Western intellect and let him know, let's say enlighten him, as to his mistake. I began by telling him that it was merely a matter of perspective, at which point he cut me off almost literally, as he raised his machete from his lap and tapped it in his hand, looking me dead in the eye. I immediately acquiesced. Another one of the locals that stands out and would not allow me to photograph him is a young man named, well, young man at the time, and his name was Skin, S-K-I-N, Skin. Skin also had a last name, but I have chosen to leave that out, again, for reasons that should become clear. Skin was always wild-eyed. Every time I saw him, really, his eyes were always just wide open and almost bulging from his head. He always appeared as if he had just seen the fiercest of demons. And in hindsight, perhaps he had. Skin and I never got together all that often, but when we did, the stories were truly fascinating. He was pretty much of a loner, and again, it was for reasons that will become clear. You see, Skin, in his not-too-distant past, had been responsible for leading coups against three different governments. And again, I'll just keep those three governments out of this. But any time that Skin and I did get together, and I would offer him something to drink, he would always insist that the bottle or the can was unopened. Because, as he put it so plainly, people are trying to poison me. And as far as offering him something to eat, never. He would never accept food, packaged or otherwise, from anyone. And for the same reasons. But in our conversations, which were predominantly one-sided, his side, they were fascinating because I got to hear the, for lack of a better term, the behind-the-scenes stories of these coups. By the end of each of our get-togethers, I have to admit, I was feeling a little paranoid myself. 
and how fascinating it was to hear about history, not just from someone who had witnessed it, but from someone who had helped to create it. And last, but certainly not least, was Cuthbert Alfredo Vanterpool. And thankfully, Cuthbert did allow me to make a photograph of him. In fact, he not only allowed me to make the photograph of him, he actually requested it. It was the first time in his entire life that he had ever allowed himself to be photographed. Cuthbert had come from the island of Antigua several years prior. He lived in this one-room shack, literally a shack. And I mention this because that shack became an integral part of the photograph I made of him. Cuthbert, ironically, was a person that I really never got to know well. In fact, in total, I probably only spent a half, maybe three quarters of a day total with him. I met Cuthbert while I was visiting some acquaintances on the island, and Cuthbert was doing some yard work for them. He and I began talking quite casually, and at one point he noticed my camera in my hand, and he pointed and he said, no pictures, man, no pictures. And I said, oh, no, it's okay, I'm not going to. Anyhow, we continued with the conversation for quite some time, and then finally, he just out of the blue pointed at the camera, and he said, Pitcher man, pitcher. I said, Cuthbert, you want me to take a picture of you? Yaman, pitcher man, pitcher man. I said, okay. So I did. I made just a few informal portraits in a sense of him. And then we talked some more. At one point, again, out of the blue, he said, I want you to come and make a picture of me at the house. I have something really special there. I said, okay. So we made arrangements to meet about two hours later at his house. When I pulled up in front of his house, Cuthbert was sitting on the stoop of his shack. And one thing that I forgot to mention is when I made the photographs of him earlier in that day, he had asked me if I would give him a copy, and I promised that the next time I came back to the island, I would. In hindsight, that's probably what led him to ask me to make this additional photograph at his shack. As I climbed out of the Jeep and walked towards Cuthbert, he said, okay, man, just wait a minute. I'm going to go inside and I'll be right back out. I said, okay. So into the shack, Cuthbert went, closed the door behind him, and while he was doing whatever, I set up the 4x5 camera. I didn't know what this quote-unquote special thing was, but I figured if there's any chance it's going to be great, I want this on really great large format film. After about 15 minutes or so, I had the camera all set up and I was just kind of hanging there waiting. The door to Cuthbert's shack swung open and out stepped Cuthbert in a gray tuxedo with tails and a matching top hat. I kid you not, it was truly amazing. And as he stood there in front of his shack, and that's where I told him to stop, I said, Cuthbert, just stand right there. Because the contrast between this incredible tuxedo, the formality of this gray formal tuxedo with tails and a top hat, against a backdrop of this unpainted, rough-hewn wood shack was just too good to be true. And then the photographic God smiled upon me yet one more time. 
as I got ready to make the photograph and I got the film holder in the camera and I had the plunger in my hand and I was talking to Cuthbert and I was trying to get him to, you know, sort of look a little more regal. And he was really nervous. Again, this is only the second time and the second time within only a few hours that he had ever allowed himself to be photographed. And he's standing there and he's not really sure how to pose. And then all of the sudden, along the dirt road that passes in front of Cuthbert's shack came an open-air bus taking the women from the local resort to work. And, of course, they all knew Cuthbert. And as they came by, they looked and they saw Cuthbert standing outside in his tuxedo. And every woman just started to hoot and holler and scream and make all kinds of incredible sounds at Cuthbert dressed in his tuxedo. And as it turns out, Cuthbert only wears that tuxedo for weddings and funerals, as he told me later. But again, as these women started to whoop it up, Cuthbert stood straight as an arrow and his chest puffed out and he was like this peacock with his wings open or his tail feathers open wide. He was so proud and he just beamed. And that's when I made the one and only photograph. After I had finished and packed all of the equipment back into the Jeep, I climbed in to leave. And that's when Cuthbert called me over. He was once again sitting on the stoop of his house. And as I stood there in front of him, he said to me, you're going to bring me the picture, right? Absolutely, Cuthbert. Truly, you have my word. What I hadn't noticed until Cuthbert glanced down at his lap was the machete that he was holding again. It was clear that he wanted me to see it, and then he said, make sure you do. For people like Cuthbert, who believe strongly that having their picture taken also takes a part of their soul, having a copy of that picture is essential to them. It seems as if by getting the photograph, it is getting that piece of their soul back. And sure enough, the next time I returned to the island, I grabbed the Jeep at the airport, as I always did, and I drove to the house. As I pulled into the driveway, I saw Cuthbert sitting on my steps, and yes, with his machete clearly visible on his lap. Hello, Cuthbert, I said as I climbed out of the Jeep. His response was, picture man. Where's my picture? Again, as the machete repeatedly raised and lowered slightly. It's right here, Cuthbert, in my suitcase. It was clear that there was no way I was getting up the steps and into the house before unpacking it and presenting it to him. Fortunately, I packed it wisely and very easily accessible. After handing it to him, he looked at it for a few moments then raised his head so that his gaze met mine, and he smiled. He smiled very big. With that, he stood up, walked past me, turned left at the dirt road, and continued on. If you would like to see the photograph that I made of Cuthbert that day, you can find it on my website, and the link is in the show notes. I sincerely want to thank you once again for allowing me to have this time to share with you another story from the world. If you'd like to keep abreast of upcoming workshops, lectures, or new releases of my fine art prints, sign up for my mailing list at davidfarmerie.com.
Facebook.com. You have my sincere word that you will not be spammed, nor will I give or share your information with anyone. You have been listening to Stories from the World. Copyright 2021, David Robert Farmerie. All rights reserved.